1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Andrew Weil, MD. He is one of the most famous world-renowned leaders and pioneers in the field of integrative medicine. He is an internationally recognized expert for his views on leading a healthy lifestyle, his philosophy of healthy aging, and his critique of future of medicine and healthcare. Combining his Harvard education and a lifetime of practicing natural and preventative medicine, Dr. Weil is the founder and director of the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Hey, Dr. Weil. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: So what the audience doesn't know, but I am so honored to have you here because 20 years ago, I had a terrible hand injury. That Mm -hmm. was, uh, it spawned so much inflammation. I had to ice my arms constantly. I couldn't even lift a fork to my mouth. And the only person out there that was even talking about inflammation because people had said, hey, don't take these pills that are an anti-inflammatory. Find another way. And I forget, I mean, you've written over 20,000 books, but w- <laughs> I forget if it was the me- – you had a CD. Boy, I'm dating myself. It might even be a tape. But something <laughs> – uh, uh, you had meditations. I'm, I'm not sure if it was eight weeks to optimal health, but I will just tell you thank you so much because your voice – and I almost want to cry right now because hearing that oh. was the only thing I had in my moments of just – Pure, like nonstop pain, was to like be able to listen to you, and so the fact that you're on the show today makes me so happy to be able to tell you how much I benefited from your work.
2: Thank you for telling me. I'm very uh, glad to hear that.
1: So uh, let's start off with, you know, we're going to get into inflammation, but let's start off with integrative medicine. Can you just, you know, a lot of people will hang a shingle over their office saying integrative, and I know that. uh, So what truly is integrative medicine? You know, how does it work and how did you get into this?
2: Well, I'm considered the the father of this field. I, I started practicing what I called natural and preventive medicine back in the in early 1980s. And I changed the name to integrative. And my idea was to combine the best uh, ideas and practices of all medical systems with the best of conventional medicine. Uh, I don't reject conventional medicine, but I think it's important to know when and when not to use it. And the basic uh, premise of integrative medicine is the body has tremendous healing potential and that uh, you always want to start with figuring out how to activate that or what might be blocking it before you resort to any kind of drastic interventions. Um, Integrative medicine also looks at patients as whole persons, not just physical bodies, but uh, as mental emotional beings and spiritual entities and community members and believes that those other dimensions are very important to take into account in understanding health and illness. Um, We place a great deal of emphasis on lifestyle and I think uh, lifestyle medicine is, an, is such an important component of integrative medicine and really puts us in a position to offer real preventive uh, care and health promotion. And uh, finally, you know, we're willing to use any methods out there, wherever they come from, as long as they're not going to cause harm and show reasonable evidence of efficacy. And this system of integrative medicine is now becoming mainstream. There's a, a, an organization called the uh, um, um, the, the consortium of academic uh, health centers for integrated medicine that now includes more than, I think, almost two-thirds of the nation's medical schools that have signed on uh, to indicate that they're doing work in the areas of clinical medicine research um, and research. Uh, Uh, and education. So, there's textbooks of integrative medicine. Now, you raised an interesting point that as this is becoming popular, many practitioners call themselves integrative and have not really been trained. Uh, I started and direct the uh, University of Arizona uh, Center for Integrative Medicine. Uh, We train physicians and nurse practitioners and medical students and medical residents. Uh, Our basic training is a a two-year, thousand-hour a training that's uh, given online and with residential weeks in Tucson, and we've now graduated over 1,800 uh, physicians from that training, and they're in practice all over the country. Uh, and if um, if your listeners. Uh, look up our website, which is integrativemedicine.arizona.edu. There's a find a practitioner link, uh, and you can find one of our trainees near you. Uh, There's also now a certification for integrative medicine through the American Board of Physician Specialties. Uh, There's an American Board of Integrative Medicine. So those are two ways that you can find uh, practitioners who have had real training in this field.
1: So fascinating. You know, on the note of integrative medicine, Throughout your span of your career, I'm sure at one point when you might have been dealing with patients who had, let's say, cancer, perhaps you were uh, involving some other integrative techniques. What are some of the amazing advancements or new knowledge factors that have come into your life, like let's say with regarding any topic uh, with integrative, but I just threw out cancer as one of them. Um, I know, for example, you know, IV therapy and things like that people yeah. are doing now. I'd love to hear like before and afters, like what you, you know, were doing then and then what you discovered maybe along the way with some of these components.
2: Well, you know, I have traveled widely throughout the world visiting healers and shamans and herbalists and practitioners of all kinds, and uh, I've seen many uh, ideas and practices that I think are nonsensical, some that are dangerous. And I think the challenge of integrative medicine is to sort through all this and to see what's best and what isn't. Same with conventional medicine, you know, the the methods of conventional medicine are very, very good for dealing with trauma, with uh, acute illness, with critical illness, but not very good. for managing chronic illness for uh, many mind-body problems and so forth. With cancer specifically, uh, let me just tell you, about five years ago, I was in Beijing, and I was looking at, integrate. they call it integrated medicine in China, and it's not exactly like us. It's uh, you know, combining uh, traditional Chinese medicine and Western medicine, but it leaves out things like uh, spirituality and medicine and uh, a lot of mind-body stuff. But I was taken to a very large hospital in Beijing called Guanganmen Hospital. When you walk into this, the whole hospital is integrative medicine. And when you walk into it, you'd think you're in a, a Western hospital, and modern city looks just like one of ours the largest department in this hospital was oncology and every cancer patient there gets uh, surgery chemotherapy radiation as indicated but also very good nutritional therapy uh, massage uh, acupuncture but particularly very sophisticated herbal therapy designed to reduce the toxicity of the standard treatments, increase their efficacy, improve quality of life, and reduce risk of recurrence. And they had very good outcomes. I've since sent some of our um, oncology fellows who've come through our training programs over there to look at what they're doing. It made me very sad to think that so few cancer patients here can access that kind of care although there is now a Society of Integrative Oncology in the US, they have a website you can look up, Uh, there's a textbook in this field, and uh, the patient demand for integrative cancer treatment is enormous. Um, At the moment, there are not many practitioners available to do that, but it's increasing.
1: Yeah. that sounds what you mentioned happening in Beijing sounds like such a comprehensive approach. It makes absolute sense to all of us on this uh, journey of health. Let's get into inflammation because that is the root of all sure. diseases. And so let's, let's talk well, first of all, like, why is that? Give us, give us the synopsis for people that are, don't even know maybe what inflammation really is.
2: Well, we all know inflammation on the surface of the body—it's local redness, heat, swelling, and pain at an area that's injured or under attack. And actually, inflammation is the although it can be uncomfortable, it's the cornerstone of the body's healing response. It's how the body gets more nourishment and more immune activity to an area that needs it. But inflammation is so powerful and it's so potentially destructive that it's very important that it stay where it's supposed to stay and end when it's supposed to end. If inflammation persists, if it serves no purpose, it becomes productive of disease. Uh, It's very important that you can produce enough inflammation because if you can't, you're susceptible to infection, but not too much because then you're susceptible to allergy and autoimmunity. But the long-range, chronic, low-level, persistent, purposeless inflammation looks like the root cause of most of of the serious chronic diseases that kill and disable people prematurely. That's true of cardiovascular disease disease, for example, coronary artery disease begins as inflammation in the lining of arteries. It's possible that cholesterol deposits are flawed healing responses of the body trying to patch areas damaged by inflammation. Alzheimer's disease begins as inflammation in the brain. That's why ibuprofen has a preventive effect. Turmeric has a preventive effect. And cancer is linked here too because anything that increases inflammation simultaneously stimulates cells to divide more frequently. And whenever cells divide more frequently, there's an increased risk of malignant transformation. Uh, Aspirin has very significant cancer protective effects because it is an anti-inflammatory agent. So the good news here is that if all of these very serious diseases have a common cause, then there's a common strategy for dealing with them. Uh, So reducing inappropriate inflammation is your best overall strategy for optimum health and longevity and reduced risk of disease. what factors influence inflammation? Uh, there are many. There's genetic factors, stress influences inflammation, exposure to environmental toxins. Uh, secondhand cigarette smoke is a powerful pro-inflammatory agent. But the mainstream North American diet is strongly pro-inflammatory. It gives us the wrong kinds of fats, the wrong kinds of carbs, and not enough of the protective elements that are mostly found in fruits, vegetables, herbs, spices, beverages. So. Um, I have designed an anti-inflammatory diet which we can talk about, but I think this is a this is a real change in medical thinking to see how chronic persistent inflammation uh, is so is so pervasive as a cause of serious chronic disease.
1: Well, you know personally, uh, systemic inflammation was combined with a pre-diabetic situation with me. And I mm-hmm. can only say that it was strange because when it was dissipated and blood markers were good, I can't necessarily tell you exactly the symptoms that dissipated, but it was a mm-hmm. clear difference. Do you know what I mean? there was cause something before was off. I felt, off and I couldn't totally quantify it if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, um, it does yeah, and I think it's it's pretty interesting because you know people are there like oh, we'll just take aspirin and it'll be fine. that's that's not enough to combat the lifestyle. Uh, let's talk a little bit about stress. Um, are you specifically speaking I mean aside from like okay, someone's getting lack of sleep mm-hmm. they're up all night but are you talking about in terms of stress and cortisol levels and how that contributes to inflammation as being the main culprit there with stress or can you just sort of dance around that topic?
2: Well, first of all, I think life is stressful and we can't live without stress. I think the trick is to um, learn and practice strategies for neutralizing the harmful effects of stress on the body and the mind. Uh, cortisol which you mentioned is the main stress hormone. It is directly toxic to nerve cells in the brain, particularly in the hippocampus, which is uh, the seat of memory. Uh, so if you're concerned about preserving your memory long term, you want to keep your cortisol levels low. and um, I think there are many choices uh, of methods to relax and reduce stress. My favorite are simple breathing techniques because they're free, they take no equipment, uh, they're very time efficient and highly effective. And just learning to to work with the breath uh, can produce dramatic changes in cortisol levels and other markers of, of uh, stress.
1: I definitely want to get into your anti-inflammatory diet and your, you have an anti-inflammatory food pyramid that you've developed. Um, What are some things out there that people might not realize is causing inflammation that they may be consuming? Aside from, you know, we know to stay away from canola oils and go for the olive and avocado and that kind of stuff, but something sneaky in there that people wouldn't necessarily think that could be causing them hidden inflammation.
2: Well, you know, the 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 first step of the anti-inflammatory diet is to avoid refined processed and manufactured food. I mean, that's that's simple. That's those are the foods that are doing us in. And I mentioned the wrong kinds of fats. Uh, you know, our government through its subsidy program has made uh, refined soybean oil a very cheap product, so it's universal in in processed foods, and that is a pro-inflammatory agent. Um, whenever oils are heated, can you tell
1: yeah, us why? Yeah, it's
2: because so of it's too. because of its fatty acid content. It's you know highly polyunsaturated, and it's tr- and, and refined soybean oil commercially produces extracted with heat and solvents, which change the chemistry of the oil in directions that make it pro-inflammatory. Uh, whenever Whenever oils are heated near their smoke point they change chemically uh, and uh, oxidize, and the results are strong pro-inflammatory compounds. You never want to breathe the smoke of burning oil. You want to get out of any kitchen or place that smells of of, uh, smoke from oil. You know, I watch cooking shows on television, especially people doing wok cooking. The oil is always heated till it's smoking before the food is put in. That's extremely dangerous, both for the person cooking and for people who eat it.
1: You know what? That's a good one that I wouldn't have thought about, but you're right. Yeah, being in those kitchens or if you have a career where that's your, um, yeah, you need to sort of do things to mitigate that or or get out of it. Let's talk a little bit more about your anti-inflammatory diet. Um, and your your food pyramid.
2: First of all, I should call it an anti-inflammatory eating plan because diets are things we go off of, and mm-hmm. uh, you know that's not what I have in mind. So to do this, I use the Mediterranean diet as a template because we have a tremendous amount of evidence for the health benefits of that way of eating uh, in terms of low risk of disease and longevity and overall good health. And everyone likes that way of eating. You know, it works all over the world. So I, I tweak that by adding Asian influences to it because I've spent a lot of time in Japan um, and some in China, other areas of, of Asia. For instance, I added uh, spices like turmeric and ginger, Asian mushrooms, uh, which are, have great health benefits, green tea, which is, a, I think, a very you know healthy beverage. Um, uh, the anti-inflammatory diet pyramid has dark chocolate at the top, which I think most people will be happy about. Um, <laughs> and the base of the pyramid is fruits and vegetables. Um, it, it allows... Uh, moderate use of of alcohol, especially red wine. Olive oil is the main cooking fat. Um, By the way, the other oils that I think are Uh, are are good for general use are avocado oil, which has now become uh, inexpensive. So, uh, you know, it's uh, affordable, good oil and algae oil, which many of your listeners may not know about. This is a relatively new product, um, has a low environmental footprint. It's all monounsaturated fat, very high smoke point, uh, neutral taste. So those are those are good oils to have in the diet.
1: Do you cook high heat with olive oil? Um, Because it's been my understanding it's best to not use olive oil with super high heat.
2: First of all, it's good to not cook at high heat generally because whenever foods are heated to high temperatures, there are chemical changes that result in compounds that are carcinogenic, pro-inflammatory. So I I more and more like low-temperature cooking. A very good cooking method that many people ignore is steaming. Uh, you know, widely used in China. You can steam fish. You can steam vegetables. That's keeps things near the boiling point of water, which is quite safe. Actually, it is okay to heat olive oil uh, and to fry in it. Although, again, you'd never want to be near its its smoke point. But I think uh, there's re- new research from Australia that I looked at that shows that it's okay to to use olive oil that way. But if I want if I want to do something more than you know, moderate heat. I would probably use um, avocado oil.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I want you mentioned matcha, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And I know you're offering fifteen sure. percent discount for all of us for for your matcha. It's uh, matcha. dot But we'll put everything in the show notes to connect with you in that as well. So this is something I've noticed, and uh, I feel like someone described this to me at once, and I'm not going to be able to re uh, re say it the probably the mm-hmm. right way. But what I've noticed in life is that like what it there's got to be a difference between the caffeine from coffee and tea, because you know, tea seems to be steady. You drink too much coffee in the morning and it like brings you up and it drops you down. And then for some reason, tea, (laughs) if I can drink, I can drink tea regularly throughout the day. I don't get too jacked up. It doesn't drop me down. Is what's, is, is there something there? Or is that just me?
2: (laughs) Yes, there is. No, I'll tell you why I think that is. First of all, uh, tea has lower caffeine than coffee. uh, But it, it, Good tea, green tea especially, and matcha especially, has a compound called L-theanine. It's an amino acid that has a relaxing effect. And you can actually buy this as a supplement now, although I don't recommend that. But I think the combination of L-theanine and caffeine produces a a state of alert relaxation. Uh, you get energy, but without the kind of jangling stimulation of coffee and without the drop that follows coffee. Uh, so I, I agree with you. I, I feel the same way. And I think... Uh, there's been a great deal of there is some research on health benefits of coffee, but the uh, evidence we have for health benefits of tea, especially green tea, is is very strong.
1: Yeah, tell us a little bit more about matcha and the components and what how it might contribute to our anti-inflammatory journey.
2: So matcha, the word means powdered tea in Japanese, and this is specially grown tea. The leaves are grown under heavy shade for three weeks before they're harvested. And in response to this, the leaves get larger, thinner, and produce more chlorophyll, which is why matcha is so bright green, and more of these flavor components and more L-theanine. And then the leaves are are dried and... uh steamed and and, uh, rolled and sorted, and then they're powdered into an extremely fine powder, almost the texture of flour. And this is um, usually whisked in hot water, or you can use an electric whisk. Uh, I like iced matcha too, you can do it in cold water, you can make matcha lattes if you want. And uh, I first discovered matcha when I was 17 years old. I went on a student exchange program to Japan and lived with Japanese families. And on the second night that I was in Japan, my host mother took me next door to her neighbor who was a practitioner of tea ceremony. Um, and. I I was blown away by the color of matcha and the flavor. And when I came back to the States, this was in 1960. I mean, nobody had ever heard of matcha, and it was unavailable here. And over the years, when I'd go to Japan, I would bring it back and introduce it to friends. And I was quite amazed to see the explosion of interest and popularity in matcha recently, Uh, but also disappointed that most of the matcha, available here is very low quality. Um, Matcha oxidizes very quickly because it has such a huge surface area and if it's not stored properly, uh, it loses its bright green color, it becomes yellowish green or gray green, it develops a bitter taste and loses a lot of its healthful properties. So I was very uh, determined to try to make high quality matcha available to people here and I made contact with a very good matcha producer outside of Kyoto and uh, got the URL matcha.com and uh, was able to start uh, distributing this matcha.
1: So aside from your matcha and knowing, you know, from you that we know it's properly sourced you're, you're drinking it yourself, we trust it. But what, what are we looking for or, not, or looking to, you know, ward us off from a, a matcha product? Should it be grown in a particular place like China versus Japan? Is there something that we can look at to see is this good matcha?
2: First of all, matcha should come from Japan. Uh, You know, in response to the demand for it, there's production now in many other places. A lot comes in from China. I'm suspicious of most products from China. I think there's high probability of toxic contaminants in it. Um, There's there's matcha being produced in Kenya and India, but none of these with the care that's done in traditional matcha growing in Japan. Um, Then when you look at a matcha product, first is the color. It should be a brilliant, dazzling green. Um, and when you taste it, uh, there, sh- it can have a slight bitterness as one of the flavor components, but it shouldn't be overwhelmingly bitter or taste like grass or seaweed. You know, it should have a fresh, clean, bright, uh, complex taste. And then the effect should be, you know, this, uh, as I said, this state of, uh, calm, uh, calm alertness and people love that.
1: No, I love, I love it so much. It's one of my favorite, uh, flavors and I'm, it's it's so interesting. You're right. How it's exploded over the past, like, uh, five, 10 years yeah. now, it seems like it's everywhere. Uh, let's jump into gut health. You know, microbiome is such a huge topic in our industry, mm. you know, from, from depression relating it to the brain to gosh, you know, conversion of yep. thyroid hormones, Hashimoto's, there's so many things where gut is affected and we've got to look at that first and or along with everything else we're doing to attack a problem. Um, Tell us about you know your opinion on how we can go about doing this.
2: Well, I think this is a tremendous revolution in medical thinking. When I was in medical school, uh, people who took um, acidophilus or ate yogurt were considered health nuts. Are you uh, are you hearing this, Al? Yeah. Okay, good. So uh, you know, there was uh, I was taught that the gut contained large numbers of bacteria nobody paid much attention to this and what's happened in the past few years is the realization that the organisms in our gut are a major determinant of everything of environmental sensitivities of physical health as you mentioned of mental health now the big and you know the the gut of the fetus is sterile and it becomes colonized with organisms at birth and right after birth and the the organisms that colonize it are there for life. So one of the questions is how can, can you change your microbiome? You know we know that the microbiome of people of hunter gatherer peoples of people who eat uh, very traditional natural diets are quite different from those of people in in industrialized countries who are eating processed food. Um, there, I think it's it's quite clear that the microbiome in the North American population has changed drastically in the last 50 years, and I think that's the result of four factors. The first is the use of antibiotics, with re, which wreak havoc with the gut microbiome and should be reserved for situations in which they are really needed. My gut estimate is that antibiotics are needed in about 10% of the instances in which they're now used. Uh, secondly is the rise of consumption of industrialized food, uh, which, which stimulates the growth of organisms very different from those of, of uh, in the guts of people who eat natural diets. Third, and this is one not so obvious, is the incredible rise of cesarean delivery. Uh, yes. now, now, one in three births in this country, uh, astonishing, and that's most of them done not for medical reasons, but for convenience. Um, when a baby is born vaginally, the organisms that colonize the gut come from the birth canal. When yeah, we're a baby, like
1: inoculated by our mothers as we're coming exactly. out of the birth canal, right? They're getting all the gook on us and that's like, what's right. the good stuff that's not happening in a C-section?
2: No, in a C-section, the organisms that colonize the gut come from the mother's skin and that's a totally different population of organisms. And the fourth factor is the decline of breastfeeding. Uh, breast milk has unusual carbohydrates in it that are indigestible. And you wonder, what are they there? You know, Why haven't they been weeded out by evolution? It turns out they are pre Biotics that feed certain populations of organisms to the exclusion of others. So when you look at those four things together, I think it's very fair to say that the North American microbiome has changed drastically. And I think that's going to turn out to be the cause of things like gluten sensitivity and the increase in allergy and autoimmunity and maybe problems like ADHD and autism. I mean, I think there's no end to this. So as I said at the beginning, the question is, how can you change your microbiome in a good direction? Most of the microbiome researchers that I know are not all that enthusiastic about probiotic supplements, but they are very enthusiastic about fermented foods. And I think it is very useful to eat live fermented foods. I make my own sauerkraut. I have a batch of sauerkraut going now on a batch of pickles made with pickling cucumbers from my garden. Uh, I eat kimchi. I eat miso. Um, I eat some yogurt, although I much prefer the yogurt that I can get in countries like Greece uh, and India and uh, Israel to the stuff that's sold here, which is mostly like custard and has you know a lot of sugar and other stuff in it. Uh, anyway, probiotic, living probiotic foods. It's very easy to make fermented foods at home. They're cheap. It's a good hobby to get into, and uh, I strongly recommend them.
1: Let me ask you something about that. So, I've noticed myself, and I'm not sure if this is perhaps, I do have an issue sometimes with foods high in sulfur, but I've talked with some people where kombucha over time can kind of make you bloated and distended stomach. And then mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, even sauerkraut or even good fermented food can make you like extra gassy in a way that's uncomfortable. How do we mitigate that, or what might be behind why that would happen? To somebody. I think
2: inter- introducing these foods too suddenly or in too large amounts mm-hmm. may be the problem. So I would try eating tiny quantities of them on a regular microdosing, basis. And gradually- microdosing from... <laughs> microdosing, exactly, and then gradually increasing to macrodosing.
1: Okay, great. Um, let's um, now, before we get into like, uh, well, actually, let's get into this now before we talk about the, the state of our healthcare and, and bum, our, bum ourselves out on that one, um, <laughs> let's talk about what... The best tactics for longevity and optimal living. Oh my gosh, what a huge span of things within there. Starting with maybe anti-inflammatory food pyramid, we know cleaning out the diet. What are some other tactics that we may not be aware of or that we need to, you know, you need to hit us home again on them?
2: Some years ago, the MacArthur Foundation did a study of what they called successful aging. Uh, They collected a population of, of people who they felt were, you know, old people who had aged successfully to see what they had in common. The two factors that stood out over everything else, first was maintenance of physical activity throughout life. I think that's very important. It doesn't mean working out with personal trainers, running marathons, going to gyms. It's moving your body all the time, whether that's housework, gardening, walking. I think walking is a terrific exercise, but very important to stay physically active. And The second factor was maintenance of social and intellectual connectivity very interesting. And those two things dwarfed everything else, the diet that people ate, whether they took supplements and so forth. Um, And I think a problem in our society is that we so devalue uh, age. You know, the, the general belief is that everything gets worse as you get older. And I absolutely don't think that's true. Uh, But all of the media, all of marketing is directed at a very young demographic, and the rest of us don't matter. So I think, and the experience of many people as they age is that their world shrinks. Uh, So I think it's very important to maintain social and intellectual connectivity. Now, beyond that, I would say, add to that, that very important to get good rest and sleep, uh, to learn and practice a method or methods of neutralizing the harmful effects of stress. Um, I would say uh, spending time with people who are who ha- are aging successfully and have the good habits that you want to have. That's by the way one of the simplest pieces of advice I can give to, to give out. If you want to improve your diet, spend more time in the company of people who eat well. If you want to have better habits of physical activity, spend more time in the company of people who have those habits.
1: Let's talk about the mind component. Uh, you know, you've, you've been on this before anyone else was, whether it be meditative practices yep. or getting people to look at, listen, trauma, right? You know, events in our life, um, just negative outlooks. There's so many things that are toxic to our health uh, because of what's being filtered through the mind. I mean, I, for example, you know, and I know you know this because it probably came from you at some point, but the the idea of like when someone's sick or struggling with a health issue to watch and maybe only be Sifting into their brain, positive comedy, humor, you know, versus versus negatives. You know, these things imprint our subconscious. I know you believe the effect of that in our world. Can you talk a little bit about even maybe some experiences you've had with patients over time who sure. had an outlook or had some trauma or something that they and what they did to get through that to improve their overall health?
2: Okay, first of all, I think that there is mental nutrition as well as physical nutrition. It's what we let into our mind, uh, you know. That nourishes our nervous system and our general being. Just one simple observation: I, I have long recommended that people take news fasts, uh, starting with one day a week yes. when you don't let any news into your consciousness, and then seeing if you can work up to a full week. You know, one thing I notice these days is that the the people that I know who are most addicted to news, especially news on television are angry, anxious, and, you know, it's addictive, and that's one you want to be careful of. Uh, If you're prone to depression, if you're constantly watching sad movies, reading sad books, listening to sad music, that's going to increase that. Uh, Moods are contagious. I and mean, then you can track them in a in a society, just the way infectious diseases move. There's research that shows if that if you have a friend who is happy, who lives within a half mile of you, that increases your chances of being happy. Uh, so it's important to p- pay attention to who you spend time with. In terms of people with illnesses, I, I you know I've always tried when I can to introduce them to other people who've had their illness and are now better. I mean, that's such a powerful message to give people. And, you know, what you said at the beginning uh, of the podcast about your own experience, I have had many patients over the years tell me that the most important thing that I did for them was that I was the only doctor who told them they could get better. Uh, yes that makes me very sad
1: <laughs> thank you for giving us yeah. me hope you were yeah. the only one damn it
2: <laughs> well it shouldn't be that way and you know the doctors i, I train are different too but the, the body has incredible healing resources and uh it's it's very important to try to erase those negative uh, predictions about the illness that patients often get from encounters with the medical profession
1: it's just it's so fascinating uh the mind body components uh what are some other mind hacks, other than? I mean, for example, well, actually, I to say I know you're you're a profound supporter of meditation practices for people, and probably still have some in your life. What are some selling points for why we might want to look into that versus, or or on top of maybe a breathing practice?
2: Sure. First of all, you know, meditation doesn't have to mean sitting cross-legged uh, for hours and following some sort of Eastern religion. You know, the essence of meditation is focused attention. Um, there's now a great popularity of mindfulness, which is bringing your attention to the present moment and not letting it drift off into thoughts or or the future or the past. Um, and I think that be, practice at that makes you more effective in all aspects of life. And the goal is not to just meditate in a sitting position, it's to try to carry that attitude through during the day. I've often said that for me, cooking is a meditation. Uh, You know, chopping vegetables, preparing food, I have a vision in my mind of what I want to do. That's very meditative for me and very useful. Washing dishes is meditative for me, working in my garden. I think Practice in this area is great. Now, one of the trends that I find very alarming and I think is undermining mental and emotional health today is all the devices that surround us and our addiction to these things. And it's, it's cell phones and computers and texting. And I, my observation is that over in recent years, the, the, all of this has shortened the attention span of people. I think it's increased social isolation. I think it increases anxiety, um, I, and I think you have to be really careful about how you limit your exposure to that.
1: I'm going to take a left turn and ask you a couple of questions about drugs. So, sure, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm in <laughs> California. Weed is legal now. Yep. Um, and, you know, I yep. actually was never a drinker. I always found it really just did, never worked with me. I also, though, look at, you know, people actually smoking and lighting of a thing, and that could counteract maybe any of the potential anti-inflammatory touted mm-hmm. benefits of THC. Yeah, What are your thoughts about the use of THC in one's life?
2: Well, let's talk about the use of cannabis, because THC is just one component yeah. of it. And, uh, sure. you know, I have a long history with this plan. I did the first double-blind human experiments with uh, cannabis back in uh, 1968. So, you know, I've been involved with this study of this for a long time. I I think cannabis is an incredibly interesting and useful plant. Um, The name cannabis, it it means hemp. It's the same root as canvas uh, because all painting was usually done on hemp Canvas and sails were made of hemp. Uh, And this, and sativa, the species name means useful. And this is a very useful plant. It provides an edible seed, uh, an edible oil, very high quality oil, uh, very high quality fiber, an intoxicant, and a medicine. That's a lot of ways for a plant to be useful. And this plant, I, I it's like the dog of the plant world. You know, long ago dogs decided to throw their evolution in with us and cannabis did the same thing. You can't we can't find truly wild uh, hemp unassociated with human activity. So as far back in history as you go, this plant wanted to be with us, living with us, serving us. And I think in this country, we've been really stupid in the way we've dealt with that. We let a multi-billion dollar industry in hemp textiles slip away to China, a multi-million dollar industry in edible hemp products go to Canada, and we've been very slow to recognize the medical potential of it. So I think, first of all, one the overwhelming fact is the almost complete absence of toxicity of this plant compared to drugs we use regularly in medicine. You can't kill people with cannabis. Uh, And there, there, we, you know, it interacts with our own endocannabinoid system, which, which seems to regulate everything from appetite, pleasure, pain, perception. Uh, I think there's a wide variation in individual response to cannabis preparations. And that makes it a little difficult to give general recommendations for it. So, but I think, uh, you know, many people find that cannabis preparations can be useful for pain relief, uh, probably for reducing inflammation, for improving mood, for promoting sleep. But again, very individual. And I think a problem at the moment is that there's so many products out there; it, it's very hard to know what to recommend to people. Um, and for doctors, there there are not cannabis products that look like medical preparations uh in the uk there's a product called uh, sativex which is a whole cannabis extract prepared as an oral spray in a metered dispenser. This looks like a medical drug and doctors would be comfortable using it. Uh, But most doctors I know are really hesitant to get into this area because, you know, they're scared of telling people to smoke things or vape. And uh, so we need more research. We need better preparations. And, uh, you know, it's happening. It's just wonderful to see finally acceptance of this. But I think uh, we need to know a lot more about how to tell People to use it, what forms to use, and keeping in mind that people are very uh, variable in their individual responses to it.
1: I remember back in the day, I lived in San Francisco, and I volunteered for people with AIDS patients. And there was the first cannabis dispensary, sort of cafe, mm-hmm. you, that you. The idea was you'd bring a, a person like me who'd be there to help you in case I don't know what you got too high, or they wanted they wanted like a <laughs> you know they wanted someone who was sort of there. Um, as a chaperone. And I remember some of these patients at the time, there was like a medical marijuana pill. I forgot what it was called at the time. Yeah, and, and it, was it really, Marinole. yeah, there you go, Marinol. Yeah. And it, and it, it, like ruined them. It, it, it was not, it, it was not preferred to the actual plant, you know? So it's no, like when they try to mess was, with this stuff and, you know, Pfizer, exactly, <laughs> then you get the exactly. wrong thing.
2: So it's not just THC, you know, the, there's also CBD, there's CBG, right. there's a whole range of compounds in cannabis as yeah. with most medicinal plants. And, uh, I think it's wrong to think that it's any one element of it that's responsible for good effects. So there's beginning to be more interest in that now as well. I'll tell you one ob- one uh, observation I've heard in Oregon and Washington um, is that doctors I know there who deal with chronic pain patients say that the availability of cannabis has revolutionized pain treatment and that it's a- 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 enabled doctors to give far lower doses of opioids um, which has been a good thing for everybody so that's one great benefit that uh, you know we're already seeing
1: well it's funny when I most of my experience is that when I go to a dispenser in California everyone there is your age and I was like oh and then I was like are they just like re, are they just reuniting with their past of like the 70s 60s or are they are funny. they there for pain management but I thought that was really interesting and then also I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know so many people I was surprised about this because, you know, back in the day when I was in high school, it was LSD and we did shrooms and stuff. But now people right, are right. microdosing psilocybin um, and, and claim that it helps them with their mood, et cetera. What are your thoughts on that? I'm not well, interested the- in it myself because I've been there and I'm, I'm over that. Yep. But, you know, I, I'm well, curious. This
2: is, this is a real phenomenon that's happening in our society that I, I would never have expected to see this way. I think that the interest in psychedelics… Not just microdosing, macrodosing also, but everywhere I go these days and talk to groups, whatever the subject is, the questions that I get asked most about are psychedelics. Um, And I think these are also going to become mainstream things. I think we're going to see legalization of of probably psilocybin first and MDMA for the treatment of PTSD, for example. Um, Again, these are very non-toxic drugs. I think the benefits of them really depend a lot on set and setting on people's expectations and uh, environment. And I I think it's very important to use them under the direction of somebody skilled in their use, meaning somebody who has a lot of personal experience with them. With microdosing, this is an interesting phenomenon, fairly recent. It's taking, with psilocybin, often taking 100 milligrams of uh, dried psilocybin cubensis, which is about a tenth of the dose that people would take to trip. Uh, I've done this a number of times. I find that I get energy from it. I don't have any perceptual changes at that dose level. Um, and I like the effects that it's had on mood. I know some people that do this every day and say their creativity is greatly enhanced. I've done it sporadically. Um, As you know, microdosing with LSD has become very popular in Silicon Valley.
1: Oh, I did Um, not know that.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, huge. That's that's unbelievable. In fact, that's where it first really caught on among all these young techies. Uh, So interesting phenomenon. And then there's medical research going on uh, specifically with psilocybin, Um, first of all, as a treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder, as a possible treatment for drug-resistant depression uh, and for anxiety, uh, and then also research at Johns Hopkins uh, documenting the fact that this increases the likelihood of people having spiritual experiences. So we're seeing a lot of stuff about the positive potential benefits of these drugs. Uh, I think that, as I say, crucial is if if you want to experiment with with them – get really good advice, and and maybe work with somebody who is personally experienced with them.
1: Right. Don't jump into a car and take a road trip on your first right. microdose. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah.
2: exactly. There's
1: some rules around By,
2: by, by the way, one, one sign of how uh, popular these are becoming is that I've seen a number of mainstream TV series in which characters are microdosing. Uh, that's a really interesting phenomenon.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, that's it's just it's so interesting to me that this is all becoming sort of acceptable conversation almost. You know, nobody nope. would even dare touch this so many years ago. <laughs> now, uh, by the yeah.
2: way, I just just give recommendation that to your listeners, uh, look up on YouTube. Uh, a video called Housewife on LSD. It is priceless. This is this is an actual experiment that was done somewhere in the 1950s in which a psychiatrist at UCLA doses this very straight woman with LSD. I won't say any more about it, but it is just fabulous. Oh,
1: that sounds really great. I'll f-
2: Housewife on LSD. I'll find
1: it and put it also in the show notes in case anyone okay. wants to click okay. on it. Um all right. So this current state of healthcare is a disaster. One of the reasons I'm out yes. there and, um, I, I, my book's on, on its way to you, but, you know, I struggled and, and had to be my own doctor, uh, with thyroid, um, because no one was testing it right. Outdated protocols 40 years ago. Um, nobody seems to be, geeking out like they used to and continually learning like you as a doctor, which I think we all need to seek out a doctor who's continually learning more than what they did 30 years ago in medical school. But it's really so sad because people go to the doctor, they've got 10 minutes, man, it's hard to navigate. Um, how how are we going to get out of this?
2: (laughs) Well, it's possible that the whole system is going to have to crash in order to create something new. I hope that doesn't happen, but it could be. We now spend, um, I think 18% of our gross domestic product on healthcare more than any people in the world by a long shot, and it's predicted to go up to 20, which is totally unsustainable. It's gonna sink us economically. And at the same time, we have poorer health outcomes than any other developed nation. The World Health Organization rates us 38th on a par with Serbia, and that's any way you look at it. It's infant mortality, longevity, rates of chronic disease. I mean, something is really wrong with this picture. Uh, I think the main problem is, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a disease management system that's working very imperfectly, perfectly. And the diseases, most of the diseases we're trying to manage are lifestyle-related diseases, which could have been avoided if people made better choices about how to eat, how to exercise, and so forth. And the, the big question we have to ask is, why can't we do a better job at prevention and health promotion? And that is a very simple answer. They don't pay. And until we can figure out how to restructure this whole system economically, we're not going to get anywhere. As dysfunctional as our healthcare system is, it's generating rivers of money, and that money is flowing into very few pockets. It's the pockets of the big pharmaceutical companies, the manufacturers of medical devices and the big insurers, and those vested interests have total control of our elected representatives. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, you can't get elected to office unless you've made deals with those vested interests, and they don't want anything to change. So when until that cha- that is broken, uh, I don't see any possibility of change happening. And the only way that's going to change is through a grassroots social political movement in which enough people get angry enough uh, and see it for what it is that we begin electing different kinds of representatives who don't have not made those deals. Not happening yet. I'm hoping that, you know, the integrative doctors that I'm training and other uh, people that are getting it will catalyze that movement.
1: Yeah, you know, because in my experience, it's like, okay, so we have this insurance because, you know, you don't want to fall off a cliff and be left with a million dollar bill. But then that insurance is really only, at least for me, someone like me, useful to go to my I don't want to say dummy doctor, but my, my standard, my standard doctor, uninformed doctor, yeah. and and get you know I, I get the blood tests that I know I need to get, and I'll do the routine checkups. But then I've got to go to my functional doctor to really figure out what the results of those things are. And so I feel yeah. like we're all kind of paying twice. You know what I mean?
2: So so I feel very strongly that integrative medicine is the solution here because um, for two reasons. The first is through its emphasis on lifestyle medicine, it can offer real uh, preventive care and health promotion. And secondly, by bringing into the mainstream treatments that are not dependent on expensive technology, it can lower costs. And, uh, you know, I think the success of this movement will be that one day we'll be able to drop the word integrative. It'll just be good medicine.
1: This is a random one, but I, I see that you love swimming. I do, and I I love swimming. In fact, I'm going to go swimming after we talk. And I, I I try to I don't try to proselytize and push it on people, but I do think that if people can jump into it, tell us why. <laughs> to me, it's meditative. Um, I swim with a snorkel and a mask, and I also, for me, again with my arm situation and sort of feeling aligned and and. Oh, what it does for me. I just, I think the benefits of swimming are amazing and I know you can do it forever. So I'd love you to, to pitch it to the world too, as to why maybe they should think about
2: it. Well, first of all, let me say that, um, in my own life, uh, I'm now 77. I can't believe that, but I am. And, uh, you know, my form of exercise has changed over the years. And I think it's very important to pay attention to changes in your body and modify physical activity accordingly. In my twenties, I ran. And then I began to get signals from my knees that they didn't like that anymore. So I switched to cycling and I did that for a number of years. I always like to walk too. I have two big dogs that take me for walks. But um, then after, I don't know how many years I cycled, but then I got into swimming and I find that is what now agrees with my body at, you know, in my, in my late 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, First of all, it's great for the joints. Uh, It is... Uh, you know, I, it's highly aerobic, um, uh, and as you say, very meditative, it's, you know, I can practice by concentrating on my breathing. Also, I spend the, um uh, uh, in, in the winters, I'm in Tucson, I have a, uh, a heated pool that's non-chlorine that I swim in, but up here in British Columbia, I swim in the ocean every day, which is quite cold. And then in a lake, which is a bit warmer. And I think, uh, exposure to cold has also been very useful to me. Uh, anyway, that, that's, that's all part of my practice along with walking.
1: You mean in terms of like hormetic response kind of situation? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I think it's just good. I think it's a good tonic for the body.
1: It's excellent. Um, so appreciate your time. DrWild.com and then you have matcha.com. Primal15 yep. is the code for 15% off. We'll put that in the notes. What are you excited about now or what, what are you working on right now and looking forward to this you year? You
2: know, one other thing that I, I don't know whether you're aware of, you know, I founded a, developed a restaurant concept called True Food Kitchen. Uh, I don't know whether you've been to one of them. We have uh, several in in uh, Southern California. Oh, but my gosh. This, I'm
1: going. I had no idea.
2: <laughs> okay, there's one in Pasadena. There's one in uh, Santa Monica that you should try. And this is my recipes. It's the anti-inflammatory diet. It's been very successful. We now have 30 of these uh, stores all over the country. So look up truefoodkitchen.com.
1: Oh, that's incredible. And... Um... Anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we go?
2: No, I also, you know, please uh, read about integrative medicine and check out uh, the website integrativemedicine.arizona.edu. There's a lot of uh, uh, online courses there that are offered for the general public. Um, and uh, f- try to find a good integrative medicine practitioner to work with.
1: Yes, absolutely agree. Thank you so much for your time. And we really appreciate you coming on.
2: Yes, I enjoyed it. Thanks, El.
0: Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. used to be called Primal Calm. And the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress, whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind, we're constantly triggering the fight-or-flight mode in modern life, in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right. Phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon. adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.